And I've had to try and break that, that belief that there is a point to flogging yourself. Welcome to the Pulling It Together Project. I am Samantha Presti and in this episode I am speaking to Laura Lex who is an award-winning comedian, critically acclaimed shows and you may have seen her on this little show called Live at the Apollo, yes. Um, so I'm very, very excited um, about this conversation. We were talking about mental health we were talking about things that enabled us both to get better from our own mental health crises we were talking about Laura's new show as well which is called Knee Jerk and it's going to be at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival 5.15 at the Gilded Balloon TV so please do buy tickets for that you can find out more about Laura on her website lauralex.co.uk and you can follow her on Twitter and Instagram at Laura Lex. Um, The new show she said is a little bit about how politics has become quite polarised and we start the conversation this way and there's there's a little bit in the conversation where I thought should I cut this? Um, I haven't cut it. I'm aware that people are going to be listening that may have anxiety so there's a little bit of a trigger warning here so we talk a little bit about political violence when discourse can turn violent so I've not cut it but what I have done in case you don't want to listen to that particular bit of conversation is I've put it right at the end of the podcast so you can listen to me and Laura talking then there'll be a bit where I say goodbye and it will be after that bit if you don't want to listen to it so you can still listen to the the whole episode we talk about CBT which stands for cognitive behavioral therapy and also I mentioned the GRA which stands for gender recognition act um just so we're, we're all in the loop um So please do also come see my show in Edinburgh. It's called Covered. It's about my recovery from a mental breakdown. It's a story of resilience, how I got my needs met in austerity Britain. And that is at four o'clock at PQA venues. And I'm also doing previews at the Hollybush, Crowley Heath. I'm in Manchester and I'm in London in July. And those dates are all listed on the website, pullingittogether.org.uk. Thank you to everyone that supported our crowdfunder. Bless you. Thank you so much. It means a lot to me. This project is a pilot. I'm hoping to continue it, so I can't do that without your support. If you like what I'm doing and you want artists to be paid for sharing their stories about mental health, because I do pay them, I think these stories have value, um, you can still contribute by going to the support us section of the website pullingittogether.org.uk or you can just go to paypal.me slash Samantha Presti and send money on there and that will go into the podcast that'll go back into the podcast so interviewing more artists um, in the future um I think that's everything I want to say in the intro 
uh, it's a fun conversation because me and Laura, we're like polar opposites. She's learning to break rules and I'm learning to make them. So I really, really enjoyed talking to her and I hope you will enjoy listening. Laura Lex, how are you? I'm all right, thanks babe, how are you? I'm good. Um, it's nice, isn't it? We've got nice weather at the moment. It's beautiful. It's not too hot. This summer, because last summer really freaked me out because it was just too hot for too long. Yeah. Whereas this summer just feels like a normal summer, like a but bit of rain, a bit of cloud, a bit of sun. It's lovely. Oh, so you're in Birmingham or at the Mac in a sort of a top secret location. You had to have a pass to get us back here. Um, and you're doing a preview of your new show. So what's that about? Yeah, Knee Jerk. Um, it's about... It's about... This is, I keep getting stuck on this question. <laughs> it's about pe- people fighting, I suppose. It's about making labels for each other and that causing people being against each other. So I'm sort of looking at um, feminism and Brexit and a bit of transphobia in with the feminism sort of... Mm. And looking at how people turn on each other rather than fighting any useful sort of fight. Yeah. That, that's kind of, I think, what I'm trying to do with it. It's interesting because it seems to be... Twitter started off as quite a good thing and now Twitter can be quite scary. Yeah. And it just seems a place where people want to sort of not even share their opinions, but it's got quite... Um, ideological it's got very tribal yeah I think my theory on it and it's just a theory I'm probably talking absolute codswallop but my theory is that when the media fundamentally has been changing so sort of newspapers have really stopped being how we get all of our news and so is a set television programme and now we have rolling 24-hour news coverage and we have the internet for newspapers. So instead of having one headline that was sensational that got you in and then you watched the rest of the show or read the rest of the paper, now we just have all headlines basically because every single story is a front page in terms Mm -hmm. of how you enter into that newspaper or you start watching the 24-hour cycle so everything's got to keep your attention so I think that possibly started making stuff a lot more sensational and then people noticed that to get attention online you just need to say the most extreme thing Mm. whichever way that goes whether it's positive extreme or negative extreme and you will get attention from both sides people that support you and people that disagree with you yeah so I think stuff has started to get very very polarized we're all sort of moving away from this middle ground and then Mm -hmm. you know the people that are sort of sat there going this is ludicrous have just stopped saying anything yeah so you've kind of left just the loudest people shouting at each other and then it's crazy isn't it um I feel like I can't say some things online anymore. Like, I feel if it's not my, like the trans thing, I feel like that's not my place to say anything Absolutely. now. Because it's so, because I'm not a trans woman, I feel like, well, I'm just going to stick to mental health. Because people don't just criticise now. They can harass and troll. Absolutely. But that's where I think we've come to a point, like for me, I've reached a turning point now where 
the internet is just not where I say my best stuff or feel my best or do mm. my best work. So I stopped using it for that. And I yeah. wonder where, how I, the internet's obviously not going anywhere, which is a good thing. But for me, a tweet or a tweet thread is just never going to be how I'm best an ally or best anything. Yeah. So, like, the reason I put some comments into how feminism gets used in, in transphobia into this show was, like, it's something I see all the time on the internet and I don't comment on the internet because, like you say, I'm not the best person to say it. Mm -hmm. So I read a lot and I retweet things that people who are living that experience do and I sort of do my best there. But then I thought, well, actually, I think it does need people who are cisgendered feminists to say no this is not a feminism that I recognize this is not something that I support yeah but you say it I think I think it's okay if the internet isn't the place where you do that I think mm -hmm. it's okay to do that in the real world or in a performance and that doesn't stop you being a good person and this podcast is kind of about like mental health, but this ties in because I think this internet culture where we're all getting lost in this bubble and the nuance is lost, as you're saying, and we could be either misunderstood or misunderstand what someone's saying because there's no facial expression or tone of voice. I don't think it has a good effect on our mental health generally as, as people, even if they're not part of the one in four people that are actually sort of diagnosed. Yeah, I mean, I hate it. I take regular breaks from social media um, and I'm moving away from Twitter because Twitter mm. is the one that makes me sad. Yeah. And if it wasn't for being a comedian and feeling like I sort of ought to have it, I'd have cancelled my account a long time ago. Uh -huh. I'd have been gone. But I think I'm slowly starting to learn that it's okay to not be in that world if you don't want to be. The internet's there as an option. But this idea that you're, if you're not saying it on the internet, you're not saying it. Like, mm -hmm. when did the internet and Twitter and social media become the only place saying things mattered? So for mm -hmm. my mental health, I think I've just tried to say to myself, if you're making a difference to people, talking to people one-on-one -on -one or saying things in your show or talking about what you believe in elsewhere, that is the same as saying it online. Yeah. And then I kind of feel that pressure less. I feel that terror that I'm not being good enough, that I'm not being supportive of things, that I'm not yeah. the best person, it minimises because I think we'll just say it in the way that makes sense to you to say it and exactly. if that's not yeah. social media that's fine. Yeah it's just one medium really isn't it social mm. media. I'm the same if it wasn't for doing comedy and being self-employed and needing to go into some of the groups on Facebook I'd be out of yeah. there. Because... But I never feel guilty that I'm not a graffiti artist and I'm not doing uh. political satire on the walls of buildings. So why would I feel guilty that I'm not tweeting mm. better mm. in a more supportive way? Like that, it, it's odd how we've developed to believe that things happening on the internet are the only place that they're happening. Mm, it's like one big comment section, isn't it, Twitter? Mm. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to speak to you today, Laura, because um, I saw your last show, it was called Trying, and it was a brilliant show and you talked about how you had sort of a mental breakdown. Yeah. And for our listeners that haven't seen the show, would you mind just summarising what happened to you and how you dealt with it and how you moved on or how you're still dealing with it? Yeah, so trying was about quite specifically um, 
becoming increasingly obsessed with the environment to the point where I couldn't carry on with my life. I've always used the word breakdown, not particularly in like a medical sense of it, mm-hmm. but just in a like, I'd stopped functioning. Um, like my life had broken down. Um, I've always had anxiety and I've always had depression, but I sort of started to notice that obsessive thoughts had got so out of control. Um, but because it was about something that's really quite logical to be nervous about the environment, I hadn't noticed how um, oppressive it had all become. And then I got to the point where I was sort of not not at all sure how to carry on being alive um, whilst completely debilitated by how to live a life without damaging the environment more. Um, and trying as a show sort of was me talking about getting help, all the help that I got, which was therapy and medication, to just keep those initial, that initial panic that just meant I couldn't do anything. Um, medication really just helped me deal with that, just to get functioning again. Mm-hmm. And then through therapy to sort of unpack what was happening um, this anxiety and this like bout of real intense anxiety had sort of really been kicked off by me and my husband wanting to try for children and my nervousness that that there wasn't enough planet left <laughs> to have children. So that show really just explored a lot really in terms of how I felt about being on medication and the stereotypical crap you hear about whether you should be on medication or not and the social pressures that come with being anxious and the social pressures that come with trying for children and then you know we we haven't had children in the end we tried for two years and never conceived and the stress mentally that comes with that as well and just that show was sort of the point of it was to not have a happy ending to it but just to end the show at a point where I was functioning again. So it wasn't a like, I got to the end and I got my baby and everything's perfect, boo, boo, boo. The end of the show was just like, there was a day where I didn't feel terrible and Mm -hmm. I just live for those moments in and amongst it all now. It was a beautiful show. It was was more than comedy, it was so inspiring as well. Will you continue to tour it, or are you going to do an album of it? Or um, I've recorded it for ne- next up. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I love so it's that. on there. We toured it a tiny bit, and there are talks in the works about touring it some more, uh-huh. um, but it's anyone's guess as to when those things actually end up happening. But it's, it's been recorded for posterity. It exists as a thing, so it's on next up. Oh, it's on next up. I was a member. Um, I need to rejoin, but I I did that thing. I, I have one share in Next Up. Yeah. I, I think I have £10 share. It's my only share. <laughs> I've got stocks and shares. I have one share. <laughs> <laughs> so I support that platform. It's really, really cool. It's, it's really cool. It's the first time I saw Fern Brady was, was on there, and now I'm one of her biggest fans. Yeah, I love her too. Amazing. She's a, another comedian that talks openly about mental health. Do you think it's getting easier to talk about mental health? Yeah, I do. I really do. Um, I think it's getting a lot easier to talk about it, and that's amazing. I think what needs to happen now is this 
talking needs to lead to more stuff. Yeah. Like, I got so frustrated this year when for Mental Health Day or whatever, it was the Downing Street, lit Downing Street green to show it was okay to talk about mental health. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, yeah, we're talking about it, but you've cut all the funding from doctors yes, and <laughs> mental exactly. health professionals. I had to wait six months to see a therapist really? um, to get my first bout of therapy. And then all the appointments were so messed up that what should have been done in six weeks of CBT actually ended up taking about eight months across two therapists and three doctor's offices which when you're feeling insecure and passed about and needing security and regular help Mm. that just was and I don't blame any of the people involved other than the people that control the funding and how our taxes get shared out but it's all very well us all talking about it and going it's good to talk and let's get it out there and yeah. let's recognise these things and also then we haven't got anyone to talk to who's yeah. a professional absolutely um, it, it, and I've got a bit in my show where just before my breakdown my mum looked everywhere in the community to try and get help for me and the only person that she could find was the local vicar mm. and um, I ended up getting sectioned because it just kept spiralling and there was nothing to sort of catch me. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you know, we do need to talk, but we need to talk to professionals. Yeah. And if you don't have enough money to hire a therapist privately, there's a lot of people that just don't get that support. No, and it's so hard to ask for help in the first place. It's so difficult uh-huh. because your thoughts are just like sand and they're moving and it depends what you've eaten or how well you've slept or who you're with so for me like it took me so long to get help because I was functioning Mm. and I just didn't understand that you could be broken without your life being in tatters if that makes sense I just thought well I'm not an alcoholic and I haven't left my husband and I haven't cheated on him or torn my life apart I haven't lost all my work or had a screaming fit somewhere I haven't had that melting point so I can't be that bad but then I was quietly numb and just like a zombie and just walking around not bothering to make plans because I just didn't think I couldn't see past the end of the day Mm. and I just didn't get any help and I think like it's great now now that we are talking about it more, I think it's wonderful. And I think the stigma on medications being lifted and even the stigma about being sectioned is going, which is incredible. I love that. I love that I have two friends that have been sectioned, <laughs> probably more that don't talk about it, but that we can say being sectioned for mental health stuff is the same as being admitted to hospital for anything else. Like it's a thing that happened and then you move on from it. It's not the rest of your life being in a little crown in the corner of the room going, oh, don't talk to them, they've got previous. Mm. I love that, but that help has got to come hand in hand with being more open about it. I think we do need to talk about sectioning because it ties into the cuts. When they sectioned me, because there were no beds available, I was kept in a police cell (gasps) for a safe place for two days. I was treated like a criminal, put in a police cell, I was in a psychosis. Um, And then... I was transferred to a private hospital, paid for by the NHS Mm. for a couple of days and then finally got a bed local to where I live. But it happened to my friend as well. And it's only been very recently that they stopped doing this to kids. So you're bang on about the funding and we do need to talk about sectioning. I'm not embarrassed I got sectioned. I tried to reach out. I knew that I was falling. 
But that was traumatizing. Yeah. Like, oh that was almost God, more yeah. traumatizing than the reason I had a break. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's important to to talk about these things. And what you were saying about, you know, you were at that stage where you felt like, well, you know, um, am I poorly enough to get help? It seems there's a blurred line mm. within the NHS, like how poorly do you have to be? Have you seen, I think it's What Would Beyonce Do? The one oh, I where- I haven't seen it, but yeah, I know I the think same. Louisa talks about her brother um, taking an overdose at Christmas and gets checked into hospital and he comes around and Thankfully, he hadn't taken too many, so he was okay. But they didn't refer him into secondary care. They, they, they just sent him on his way. And she's like, how sick does someone have to be yeah. to get help? And apparently, you have to be totally batshit, and then they'll put you in a police cell. And yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, I can't fault. Once I got in there, I remember going to the GP and sitting down with them, and then all this stuff just falling out of my mouth about my paranoia about the environment uh -huh. and like I'd got to a point where I couldn't go to sleep unless we had a full tank of fuel so that if I woke up and society had fallen apart wow. I could get to help or get to my family and get to help uh -huh. them and I just was you know if my husband wasn't home I couldn't use electricity because you know, the logic, whatever the anxiety logic is, you know what it's like. You've made all these rules for yourself. Mm. Um, uh, and then I remember talking to my sister um, who sort of, put, sort of said, you're not worried about a silly thing, but you're worrying about it to the extent where you can't do anything to help it. Mm. The what you're worried about isn't wrong, but the way you're worrying is is too much it's that's not right so then sort of going into that gp and all this stuff spilling out and her saying do you want therapy or medication and i said therapy i definitely want therapy she said okay we'll put you on the wait list it'll be six months ish mm -hmm. and i went I can't, I can't live like this for six more months. I need the medication then. And so I went on the medication with the view to sort of getting into therapy. And I cannot fault them. They l took one look at me, talked to me for a little bit and kind of went, right, yes, you need help, <laughs> which was amazing. It was amazing. And then I, you know, so that, that was mainly one of the reasons I started talking about it in the first place was that I wanted... I remember chatting to somebody else who'd been prescribed the same medication as me but didn't want to take it because they were frightened of the side effects and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and I sort of was sitting there on that medication and kind of said to them, oh, babe, I'm on that. Like, And we were sat backstage at a gig, so I was yeah. saying, I'm still gigging, I'm still thinking, and I feel like me again. It took off the bit that wasn't me rather than yeah. adding a layer that wasn't me. And that was the first day I wrote a blog post about it and put something out in public about being on it was because I wanted to say I had mental health issues that had escalated. I went to the doctor. They didn't force pills down my throat. They asked me which one I wanted. And when I didn't want medication, it was fine. Uh -huh. And then when I said oh, okay, I can't wait, I need something for right now, that's when medication got involved. Because I think there's this fear that if you admit to 
being ill in any way, you'll suddenly be zombified on drugs and big yeah. pharma will do this, wah, 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 and that wasn't my experience at all. And like, that was the first time I started talking about it was when I wanted to say that. Yeah. It's good to hear your perspective. Um, I manage my bipolar now without medication, but I do occasionally take a diazepam. Right. If I feel like I'm getting a little bit too high or I'm not sleeping well, it sorts me out. Okay. So I'm not completely like anti-meds, but some of them, the bipolar ones, I think it's, you're lucky when you find your right Absolutely. one. Absolutely. I had bad experience. I was like passed out in the toilet when I was in the hospital and hit my head on a concrete sink. So I'm one of those yeah. people that's terrified of Absolutely. medications, but I realise that they do save people's lives. Totally. There is a place for them. There's a place for them, but again, that's where, for me, it comes back to funding, of saying, you have got to find the right dosage, not yeah. just the right med, but the right dosage. And yeah. to be able to do that, you really need to be able to get in and see a doctor every mm. three or four days, every week, until you find that. Uh-huh. And, like, in my, where I live, in order to get a doctor's appointment, you have to phone up at 8 a.m., if you're not sleeping or you work nights or you're struggling yeah. to feel like you should be the priority of a stretched system, phoning up at 8am and telling a receptionist why you need to come in, it's, it can be too difficult. Yeah, it's feel. not accessible to yeah. people that maybe have insomnia and I'm the same, I work nights, I don't ever like to get up before 10 this is with my body clock. So yeah, two absolutely. O'clock, if you're driving until 2 a.m., yeah. you can't be up at 7.45. Yeah, so I find it like, really, really difficult to wake up before, before 10 o'clock. So, yeah, it does need to sort of... They're very overstretched, yeah. all of them, yeah. all the services. <laughs> but hopefully, talking about that and um, taking action politically, hopefully we, we will get change. I mean, Theresa May said a while ago now that austerity has ended, but clearly not. Well, yeah, as the money st- I mean, yeah. I, I just think the prioritising has got to shift a bit. Like, I love paying tax. I think paying tax is a really important thing in a democracy and in a society. But I can understand where people get frustrated with tax when your taxes keep going up and the services you're getting keep yeah. being cut. And then you see this creeping blame of other people coming in and being a drain and you go, no, there would be plenty for everybody if we yeah. d- if we did this properly. I think health and well-being should be a priority, but just doesn't seem to be that the government is spending our money that way. And people care about the NHS. We know that. That's why a lot of people voted for Brexit. Um, But we're not getting the NHS that we deserve. And the NHS is great, but without the proper funding, it becomes, well, like a death trap if people are not getting what they need. Um, But, yeah, I, I don't know how we can... We can vote, but then do they do what they say they're going to do? We're talking about it. I've got this um, thing on my publicity at the moment. Join the Barmy Army. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm a direct action kind of person. But what do you do with mental health without coming across? Like, they were so easily dismissed. Like, she's a crazy person. Don't take her seriously. <laughs> um, but, yeah, there's, there's got to be a way to... This is what frustrates me is that a lot of people like us, I think there's a spectrum of mental health issues and some of us are high functioning, 
And some of us are, are completely debilitated long-term by mental health issues. And these are the people that can't fight back. And it seems that these are the people that are experiencing a lot of the mm. austerity cuts. I think there was a UN report on that, how austerity was disproportionately affecting marginalised groups, including the disabled. So it's yeah. quite scary. Ah, little rant. <laughs> <I> think, <laughs> At least it's not on Twitter. No, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I think... For me, I don't know, I feel powerless so much of the time. I don't feel informed enough to say, oh, we've got to make these changes at governmental level. I don't feel powerful enough. But I think the way I hope a difference can be made is by continually putting out into the world how you think it makes most sense for it to work and, and that becoming the common sense for the next generation. Mm -hmm. Because these sets of politicians and these sets of thinkers are only going to be around for so long. And you look at how the NHS was created in a sort of, you know, post-war world. Who could have foreseen that happening? And yes, we're in a place where it feels very precarious now, but maybe enough people are angered by what's happening and watching it crumble that that will be a fleeting thing and we'll go back the other way. I kind of, I don't know. I, I just don't know, but that's what I hang my hope on. Mm. Oh, it frustrates me so much. I hear so many stories of people that, even people that are older and they're angry because they've paid their taxes all their life and then they'll go into the hospital and they're failed by the system or, you know, they're not diagnosed soon enough. And I feel like we need to do something now, like right now, but I, I don't know what can be done. And I think a lot of people don't realise how bad it is mm. until they're on the floor. Like when I was watching my dad die in the hospital and when I was in the hospital and I was seeing that they were short-staffed and I wasn't getting the care that I needed because they were short-staffed and I've seen it. And I think there's a lot of people that don't see it until they have to actually go into the hospitals because... Yeah. I don't know. Oh, wow, I could talk to you for forever. <laughs> um, one of the reasons, another one of the reasons I really wanted to talk to you was because when I did come out of the hospital and I'd been very poorly and I'd been diagnosed with bipolar and I was told you're not going to work and you need to be on benefits for the rest of your life, well, um, other people with mental health issues, a lot of comedians actually, like Russell Brand, and um, at the time I just discovered Alfie Brown and... Um, Robin Williams was another one that um, had bipolar. So these people all had my diagnosis. So I could look at these people and be like, okay, well, they're doing okay. I'm going to get better. So what do you do? What did you do? And what do you do now to try and maintain your uh, well-being as best as you can? Um, at the time, I, I did CBT, which really helped me... Um, try and try and unpack where my thoughts had got so frightened that I felt like they'd all bunched up at the front of my brain and I just couldn't think straight because I was just terrified all the time just scared of everything um so I did a lot of examining of why I was so scared and walking things back that was the big big thing for me was walking everything back so if I thought I was scared of x walk that back to the thing that I'm actually scared of at the back of that thought and that really helped me mm. um 
really helped me to just understand my fears and see how reasonable they were or whether they were completely unreasonable and just try and make everything more manageable. Um, I think ongoing, I think I just try and be more in tune with what what is happening with me I'm I'm so obsessive about stuff I'm such a, I'm a workaholic I find it really hard to say no to things I fill up my diary and only leave you know a morning off every fortnight and then I wonder why I'm exhausted and crying and can't cope with everything and why I feel so broken and I've had to try and break that that belief that there is a point to flogging yourself. Oh, bless you. <laughs> do, do you know what I mean? Like, there's, mm-hmm. I think, I've just, I've always been a real rule follower. So at school, you're told to work hard. So I worked hard mm-hmm. and I haven't stopped. And then it was like, get the GCSEs you need. So I did. Get the A-levels you need. So I did. Get a degree. I did. You have to go and work now. Okay, I did. But I wanted to be a comedian, so now I'm in comedy. And then it felt like the point of comedy was to be a superstar. So Mm -hmm. I just started trying to do that. And now I think having, having had to put everything back together, having thought it was all over, it sort of takes a lot of energy from me now, but it feels better to kind of go... Who am I doing any of this stuff for? Because I'm not happy working 24 hours a day. I can't do it. And it's not how I want to live. So if I choose to have four days where I go to my allotment and do some gardening and then I watch TV for 10 hours, that's my call. And that's not bad. This moralising of what you should or shouldn't be doing with your time. In my head... As long as I can pay my bills, feed myself and contribute, that is my bare minimum. That's all I have to do. Everything else is invented by other people mm-hmm. to push society along or to create. And that's great. If I can do that, mm-hmm. I'll do it. That's great. But that none of those expectations are set in stone or mean anything in the grand scheme. I've really tried to put that that into my life to go if I want to sit around and play computer games with my husband where we're just giggling for a few hours that's not a bad thing that's not a guilty pleasure that's not a oh I feel a bit bad I've been a bit lazy today that moralizing of lazy or busy is something I'm really trying to get rid of from my life because it led to this compulsion to feel guilt and shame and fear that I wasn't doing things properly and that's nonsense I think (laughs) and on a good day I know that and on a bad day I just cry all day (laughs) I recognise that being self-employed I've had to start actually marking days off in my diary me too because if I don't it all gets filled up and I'm the same, I'm like, oh no, I need to be in bed for a couple of days, I'm exhausted. And it's so easy to do, but like, you know, I've done exactly the same, I blanked out Mondays now, I don't work on Mondays. Me too, yay! And it's in my diary, in my calendar, every single Monday, and then I said to my husband, I said, oh, I'm going to have Mondays off, and he went, that's a really good idea, 
And I was like, yeah. And then, you know, I can just use that day for writing or whatever. And he went, so you're not having it off then? You're going to write? And I was like, oh, that's a good point. Maybe I should have two days off. Maybe I should have a day where I just don't think about my work. And then that seemed really scary. But I was like, and then since I started doing that, I'm so much happier. Mm. But that's another thing where social media ties in is that I'm a comedian. That is what I do for my job. But then that's also who I am. Mm. So if Twitter and stuff are always on my phone and I'm supposed to be putting this funny output onto social media, is there ever a day where I can just not do any of that? Like, because social media is 24 hours and your job is your identity, you don't get that respite from it. Mm. And it comes with this sense of progression constantly as well. So if I go to a party and I meet new people or I meet people I've known for years, if I meet an accountant, I might say, hey, how's work? And I just mean, do you still have a job? Do you like that job? Are you happy day to day? But if somebody meets me and says, how's comedy going? Big gigs lately? How's it progressing? Have you got any TV stuff coming up? They're more asking me about how how I've progressed. Mm. Whereas I never go to an accountant, have you been promoted lately? Are you a partner yet? <laughs> no, I never meet teachers and go, oh, so did you get into teaching just to be a teacher? You don't, do you not want to be a head teacher? Do you not want to be an Ofsted? Do you not want to aim for the top one? We just mm. know that some jobs are just, that's what you do and you do it because you love it. And with comedy, I have only just realised how much pressure that had been on me that I didn't want, that I feel pressure when I meet people to give them new things that I've been doing. It's not okay to just go, oh, I did a gig that I've been doing for 10 years that I love, and I just like my job. I just like my day-to-day gigging. And I I don't have to... Because it never ends. It never ends. When you're an open spot, you think you'll be happy when you're a full-time comic. And then you become a full-time comic. And suddenly people start asking you about TV. And then last year I did Live at the Apollo. And I loved it. And I'd say about four months after Apollo, people stopped asking me how great Apollo was and started asking me if I had any more TV coming up. You just get such a small respite before you're supposed to have done the next thing. Do you feel this pressure from the industry or your audience, or is it a bit both? Both. Both, and me, it comes from me, it comes from my audience, well, not my audience, it comes from audience members, it definitely comes from the industry, because you look at the vast majority of accolades that you can get in this career, and they will mostly have the word new in them somewhere. Mm -hmm. So there's this pressure to be brilliant very quickly. And if you're not new, what even are you? <laughs> what is the point in you? And you, especially, and i rolling my eyes already saying this, but especially as a woman, you feel this pressure to be shiny. And actually you're at your funniest when you're a bit beaten up and older and have seen through all the crap that you thought was truth that was just actually somebody's opinion. And uh, you you feel scared that you'll miss the boat? I think people see comedians in a way like they may look at the lead singer of a rock band sometimes. I do, anyway. I, I hero-worship various comedians. Um, 
so I think, yeah, that could be one of the reasons why you keep getting asked. You're a leader. Yeah. You're a leader. You're on a platform talking about society, reflecting what's going on. And I feel there's influence in that. I hope so. And it is just talking, but in a comedic way, I feel it plants seeds as well. Yeah, I hope so. That's what I like about it. I think that's what I'm growing to really love about comedy. And especially this stage of comedy that I'm in at the moment where I've never felt more powerful as a person because I've got through something that I thought was the end and I'm here and I'm carrying on and I'm less fettered by what I thought were rules that aren't mm. rules. And I love at this, like, this tiny point of my career where I've got... I'm, I'm better at comedy than I've ever been and I'm also more interesting within my comedy than I've ever been. But I'm still, for the far, most part, completely unknown to the vast majority of non-comedy fans. You know, the general public have no idea who I am. Oh, I don't know. You've been on Live at the Apollo. Sure. But, you know... And you loads asked, of people were talking about you in Edinburgh. I know that's Edinburgh. But that's but... within the comedy world. So, sure, within the comedy world, absolutely. But for the vast majority of comedy clubs... I would turn up and I would say under 10% of the comedy club mm. audience would know who I was. So there's this beautiful thing that I can do at the moment where I can pop in to somebody's Friday night, chat for 20 minutes and say some stuff that means something to me and might mean something to them and then I can go away again. And there's no none of the baggage that comes with being like a superstar. Like I've read the books of really famous people and you look at oh my goodness what they have to deal with mm. every time they open their mouth or go for dinner or say anything yeah and at the moment at this like amazing stage of comedy anonymity yeah exactly. you just go home afterwards and and it's not you've just had this amazing minute with some people and then you go away again and I love that and I think it's one of the things I've always really loved about comedy is that no matter how huge you are as a comedian, comedy dies after a certain number of years. So even the, the, the biggest stand-up comics of the 30s and the 40s, mm. you'd watch their set now and sort of go, OK, right. But it wouldn't make you laugh like a contemporary comedian makes you laugh. Yeah. So no matter how huge you are, it's always fleeting. And I think that that's really cool about comedy. Yeah, and it kind of is like the land of no rules. Yeah. I love talking to you because I'm an anarchist. And you're going <laughs> on about all these rules. Um, what inspired you? Do you want to do comedy, Laura? Um, like, largely it was accidental. It was just a load of stuff happened at uni that meant I ended up doing improvised comedy with some friends. And then... Um, I'd gone to the university I went to to do radio production because I really wanted to work in radio, but then the specialisms got cancelled. And so by the time I got to my fourth year, there were sort of two choices, and it was stand-up comedy or directing were the only two I was really interested in by that point. Um, and stand-up had a performative element to it, and I knew I wanted to do something before me. I didn't want to mm. direct other actors, so I did the stand-up module, and I just loved it. I really liked it. And I sort of thought stand-up goes with so many other performative careers. So I knew I could get started in stand-up. 
and then that could lead to acting work and it would let me do writing and do other things so I, that so yeah I just did that really I did it for a year for my master's sort of studying stand-up more than learning how to do it it was more like studying joke theory and humor uh-huh. um and then I just carried on. I just really liked it. And I liked how immediate it was. I liked being self-propelling. I really liked that. I liked I liked not having to rehearse. Like, I'd done plays and loads of acting. And uh, it was like, yeah. <laughs> no, I don't have to audition to do stand-up. You just ring them and they've got a date for you in eight months and then you turn up and do it. You know, I just, yeah, yeah. I like how... I just liked how independent it was, and I still do. Yeah. Yeah, I saw you do your club set, and oh, I thought it was brilliant. I had this idea in my head, because I don't consider myself a club comic. I came into comedy, I'm like, oh, I want to write a show. And everyone's like, oh, no, you can't write a show yet. You're too new. And I just want to write a show. <laughs> um, so I've done four shows, but I don't do clubs, right. um, professionally, at least. Um, and to see, to see you, I found that quite inspiring. And I thought, well, maybe I could do clubs, because I had this idea of what a club comic was, and that yeah. they would just do general jokes, and they wouldn't talk about anything too heavy. But you had a brilliant bit. I nearly fell off my chair. You would, your your belly button was depressed. This is all I remember. But the way that you acted it out it was the funniest thing ever. And I thought she's on there in front of people in a Saturday night. She's she's talking about mental health, and it can work in a club setting. Because I was thinking you've got to do it in an art centre if you want to talk about mental health. But it was inspiring to see that. And I thought well, maybe yeah, I could do that. I yeah, I you do both very well. Thank you. I hate that idea that you have to do one or the other in comedy. I hate that belief. You can, sure, cool, do what you want in comedy for goodness sake, but this this belief that you're either an Edinburgh show comedian uh. or you're a club comic. I just I've never subscribed to that. I just think it's nonsense because all doing either of them will do is make you better at the other one. So if you get really good at doing 20 minutes, you'll learn on a Saturday night in Nottingham that you've only got 20 seconds to get your first punchline out or you're going to lose them. And if you can then take that into an Edinburgh show where within 20 seconds people are laughing, that show's better. And then if you go to Edinburgh and write an hour on mental health and babies and the environment and then you can take four minutes of that and stick it on a Saturday night like obviously the whole show doesn't work as a club set but if you can cut that up and take bits of it then you just make that Saturday night more interesting and you just stand out a bit more and I I think they're two different beasts I think they are different styles Mm. but I like that why wouldn't you want to have two paint sets to play with instead of one (laughs) then sometimes I sit down and I think of an idea and I think oh I want to talk about that but I think oh does the average person that's just you know got their one night out that week with a babysitter paid for and they've had dinner out do they want to listen to that then no and I don't want to tell it quickly I want to tell it slower with a bit more time so that I'll work on for something else yeah and then other bits, you think like, oh, that was really interesting in my Edinburgh hour, but yeah, it's got a punchy joke, right? That could slip back in and I'll take that back onto the circuit. I, I think, again, it's, it's these rules. It's these rules that people tell you are rules and you go, that's just somebody that either didn't want to do both, yeah. so said you can't, or couldn't do both, so said you can't. Yeah, yeah, and it's I believed real. it to yeah. begin with. But not anymore. So, yeah, I, I get what you're saying about CBT. It is, like, challenging those um, beliefs 
Yeah. And sometimes we just absorb those beliefs without questioning them. I do completely. I'm such a... I think my natural inclination to be non-confrontational, and I, I don't know if I have it to the same extent anymore, but my fundamental belief that most people are good and most people do stuff to be helpful or to not impede made me really trusting of what everybody said. <laughs> and then you hit a point where you're an adult where you go, oh, I had this fundamental belief that all grown-ups were brilliant and they're not, they're just other people. Uh -huh. And you sort of see behind the curtain and just go, oh, all right then, I can break the rules, some of them, because some of them Yay. are just stupid. They're just <laughs> things that people made up, that they oh. were just alive before me, so they made up the rule before I got there. I'm, I'm so prone to just following what people say. It's taken me, you know, I mean, I'm only 32, I'm not super old, I'm not super young, but... Oh my goodness, if I'd known at 21 that rules were just somebody's opinion, I'd have been a very different person for the last 10 years. We're like polar opposites in a way, because I've smashed all the rules, all the boundaries, <laughs> and I was thinking, Sammy, you kind of do need some boundaries. It's <laughs> like <laughs> so what we were talking about earlier, about talking about mental health. and I found that I was being too open, or okay. maybe talking to the wrong people, just putting it all out there on Facebook. And when, in, with my disability, like being bipolar, sometimes I can be erratic. It's not a good idea to do that because you don't know who's reading it, who's listening to it. And um, it's better for me to just talk one-on-one -on -one with someone or phone someone up and then I'm better likely to mm. calm down. Because then if you get another mentally ill person, get triggered by your status, they're like, no, yeah. I'm just reaching worse. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I've had to sort of make rules for myself. I've got a bullet journal now, I've got a habit tracker. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think like, that it's interesting. I just, I just feel right, really comfortable with you, even though we're very different in our <laughs> yeah. approaches to life. I think it's good though, it's nice. <laughs> I think, like, rules for me, I think, have boiled down now to if, if it hurts somebody else, then I won't do it. And those are the rules I'll follow. If I can work the rule back and at the beginning of the rule it stops other people getting hurt, that's a rule I'm interested in. Mm. Um, and with social media, I totally agree. I think I'm glad social media wasn't around for my early 20s to the same extent that it is now. I know it was around, but I wasn't as into it. Um, but now, like, if I feel that need, if I feel that need to go, like, I'm struggling, I'm in a weird whirlpool of stuff, I want to put something out into the world, if I can't think of, I sort of, instead of putting it on Facebook or whatever, now I, I think, if I put that on Facebook, who would I hope would get in contact with me? Mm. And then I just talk to them instead. Mm. Because I totally agree with you. You put it out because you need that. Ugh. Yeah, you have to kind of purge. Yeah. yeah, but sometimes just writing it down anywhere helps. Yeah. And then I do you go, morning... I didn't need anyone to see it. I yeah. just needed to get it, get it gone. Out. Yeah. yeah, I do morning pages now. Yeah. And since I've been doing morning pages, I hardly ever write statuses on Facebook. I'm like, oh, I'm doing a gig on Sunday. I should tell people about yeah. that. Yeah, but, yeah. I don't feel it, it was a need, but I was meeting the need in the wrong way. And then it was a need that backfired badly for me, which is what I talk about in my show, but I, I won't go into that. We're running out of time. Yeah. Um, well, I think very quickly, though, with, the, mm -hmm. with talking about mental health and, and stuff in comedy, the rule for me there is to always check how many jokes there are in it. 
So the subject can be anything, but in order to mean for me that I'm comfortable doing it and to know that it'll work for a wide audience is to check what the jokes are. Mm. So I can have maybe one point or explanation to every four jokes, but it's got to always come back to jokes. And that's the way for me I make sure that it's not just becoming like a speech or a lecture. It's got to have things that I could cut out and say, I could tweet that as a one-liner or I could send that to a newspaper as a one-liner joke. And that's, I think, how you can double-check where you're going with it. Yeah, you're an excellent joke writer. It, it's practice. It's all practice. It's n- it's, I never used to be, and I used to convince myself that I couldn't write jokes. I was like, no, I'm a chatty comic. I'm, I'm a much more <laughs> of a improvising and just involved with the audience, and it's more stories. And then when I wanted to be better at comedy, I went and looked at other people that I th- were the comics that I wanted to be. And I was like, oh, it sounds like a story. It's actually loads of jokes tied together. There's the setup, there's the punchline, there's the setup, there's the punchline. So I'd go, okay, how do I do that? So like one of the jokes in trying, when I wanted to talk about how important it was to talk about mental health, I was like, mm-hmm. right, okay, so I want to lift the lid on antidepressants, but it's hard because you have to push it down and take it around. <laughs> So it's like, right, I'm saying what I want to say. I'm saying it's important to talk about mental health, but put it in a joke. And yeah. that, to me, makes it so much more fun and more palatable and exactly. means that you're not just talking to people that were already interested in mental health. Yes. You've, you've yes. found a way to give it to people that had no interest before you yeah. bundled into their life. You're not just preaching to the converted. So yeah. yeah. I think that is action. I think that kind of talking when you're on stage in front of 200 people that is taking action I hope so because that's the only action I can take realistically I'm not going to be a politician I'm not going to be a doctor or a mental health professional I can be a patron for charities and I can talk about things but I can only reach an audience if I make those things funny Mm. and I've kind of you have to realise your limitations it's another CBT thing of going put things in jars is this something I can fix now yes Uh okay then do it is this something I can fix but later yes okay so put it on the list to be fixed or is this something that I just cannot fix and if I cannot do it I can't take responsibility for it Mm. that's not my my sphere that's not something I can worry about and I really try now I do find it really difficult I don't do it well but I really try now to just be like that's just not something I can do Mm. I can't be arguing with people on Twitter I can't change people's minds by an argument on Twitter I'm not strong enough to do that I don't like doing that and I don't do it effectively but what I can do is do a show yeah and that's okay. You can't do everything. Yeah. I like that. I like that you put things in jars. I've got a jar as well. Yeah. <laughs> I just, anything that's in my mind, I, I write it in the jar. I call it, I call it the God jar. I'm not really religious, but like it's, it's the out of my head jar. Yeah. And, and like in Harry Potter, you know, when he does the, have you read Harry Potter? Uh, no, the I've never even seen the film. Oh, there's a bit in that. So there's a spell you can do where you 
do some sort of spell on your mind and you pull memories and thoughts out of the brain and put them in a basin so you can look at them oh. externally and I just I'd love one of those oh. to be able to like take an obsessive problem that's been winding around my brain and put it in a in a basin and have a look at it and sort it out would be beautiful <laughs> I better wrap up with you um I did want to ask you um we've covered a lot of this on on the episode but if you could summarize um your self-care tips like you said you've, you've got a allotment have you I do like yeah I have an allotment so my my self-care tips for me personally were redeveloping hobbies um redeveloping hobbies was a big one so getting games or my allotment which I love um I now try and do the basics. I have my basics checkup where if I'm starting to tremble, I'm a really trembly, anxious person, so I get the shakes and my throat hurts. Quite, I think, from the tension of, like, you know, when you hold your neck. Yeah. So when those start to kick in, I need to double-check all, like, doing a, like, car maintenance checkup. Am I thirsty? Am I hungry? Am I tired? Um... Am I due on my period soon? Like, do those basic checks to just go before I do anything further, like the secondary ones, check those basics. And then, so, if I'm tired, sit down then and stop for a bit. Um, Or, you know, eat something proper. Eat something that's got the things that your brain needs. Um, I do those. I, I try and control what I give my brain to play with. So I know that my brain is overactive so if I give my brain loads of people complaining on social media to play with those are the toys it's got that day and that's what I'm going to think about that day so if I get up in the morning and instead of scrolling through Facebook or Twitter or Instagram I go and water my tomato plants and think about how much I like mud and I like plants that's what my brain's got to play with so that's better um exercise was huge for me I'm not a natural exerciser or I wasn't so I I I mean I'm lucky because I could afford to do it and I realized that this is not within everybody's means at all but I got a personal trainer so that there was an hour a week that wasn't my responsibility so all I have to do is get myself there and then once I'm there she takes over for an hour and she goes pick that up 10 times and then I pick it up 10 times and then she says do that for 30 seconds and I do it for 30 seconds and I don't have to plan it or motivate myself or just for an hour oh my goodness nothing's nothing's on me and I love that yay I love that and I leave there tired I leave there having changed the chemical makeup of my body by exercising I leave hungry and not feeling guilt about eating stuff which is another big guilt that I have is food and eating and the moralizing of eating which is so stupid um all of that just is lessened for a bit and I I try and remember the CBT homework and I kept all of the paperwork from my CBT homework to just remind myself like is it my responsibility probably not or whatever Uh and things that I am just allowed to do because I just want to if I want to sit down and rest I can rest and that's okay it doesn't matter my Edinburgh show this year is not as good because I had some extra days off what who cares 
it's not going to be terrible. You haven't let anybody down. You don't owe it to the people that bought tickets to work 18 hours a day on that show. That's You owe them a show and you'll yeah. give them one because you just will. You've worked hard. You don't have to be always working hard. I try and remember those things. Oh, that's lovely. Thank you so much, Oh, Laura. thank you. It's been a real been pleasure to spend an hour with you. <laughs> thank you. That was Laura Lex. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. The next episode is going to be with Juliet Burton, who is also doing a show in Edinburgh. Please buy tickets for all of our Edinburgh shows to support us. Um, the music as well at the beginning of this podcast is... Um, it was written by Tom Palmer and it's performed by the band Itchy Teeth. Um, so I just wanted to give credit to the music. I'm now going to play the bit that I cut from the main conversation. So if you don't want to hear about how politics can turn violent, goodbye. Thank you for listening and I'll see you on the next episode. I might cut this from the podcast, but going into the real world, um, I have a friend who's a trans woman. You may have read this in the media. Well, she's not my friend, but she's part of my community. Mm. And um, with this whole trans debate online, a lot of the people that were part of the other side have now been banned from Twitter because it got so heated. But they were meeting at Speaker's Corner to discuss the GRA um, laws. And um, this lady, I'm not going to say her name on the podcast, but it got quite heated. She was egged on and she actually punched one of the other feminists um, who were being branded as the turfs. And it was all over the papers and, and she got off with a fine, I believe. Um, but yeah, it's like even off the internet, it can be so scary how intense and mm. sort of these things are getting. And, and then going on from that you've got people throwing milkshakes and stuff like what do you think when it gets past that point where it's getting like physical well in i mean i don't want to throw a milkshake at anybody no <laughs> me neither sort of not really i don't like confrontation at all i i don't mm. like i can't bear it which is why the internet to me has just become a place where i'm quite unhappy and don't want to be anymore yeah. but i don't I don't subscribe to the idea that milkshake is an escalation of anything. I think in the grand terms of political dispute and political anger, milkshake is a de-escalation by a long way. Mm -hmm. And I think the idea that milkshake is a beginning of a violence that's going to get worse, I don't subscribe to that as a theory. I think milkshake yeah. is violence having gotten better because... Maybe, yeah. You've, you've just... I mean, in the last few years, we've, we've had a politician murdered for her opinions. Oh, God, yeah, yeah. So I don't see a milkshake as... I don't want it to become normalised. I don't want polit politics to be reduced to childish things like that. But I, I... I don't know. I just... I don't believe in this... I hate this rhetoric that everything is getting worse that we're on this sliding scale of things getting worse like people saying oh cancelling culture oh we've got so reactive to things now we just do this and that and you kind of think well no we used to chop people's heads off when we didn't yeah. agree with them <laughs> this is true. The, the fact that we now just say I don't agree with you and I don't want to watch the sitcom you made or listen yeah. to the music you made or whatever we've become more tolerant massively mm. we're more tolerant 